Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 23rd of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. On Monday, China's Xi Jinping arrived in Moscow for a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Change is coming that hasn't happened in a hundred years. We are driving this change together. We discuss what took place during Xi's visit and the implications of their meeting. And then we discuss the legacy of the Iraq War on the 20th anniversary of the US-led invasion. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. We also take a listener's question on Donald Trump's legal dilemmas. If you are a listener of World Review and you have a question for us, you can send in yours at newstatesman.com slash youaskus. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. This week, Xi Jinping arrived in Moscow for two days of talks with Vladimir Putin. The trip, which China's leader has tried to spin as a peace mission, saw the two leaders double down on their economic partnership on Tuesday, with pledges to bring more Russian energy to China and more Chinese companies to Russia. But how solid is their alliance? Does the partnership that they claim has no limits indeed have limits? Katie, I was wondering if maybe to start, you could just talk a little bit about this trip and how it's how it has been framed on the China side of its purpose. I think the tightrope that she is trying to walk with this is number one, securing the relationship. It's very important to him. He has no intention of backing away from the relationship with Moscow. And to some extent, I think this trip is intended to signal business as usual. It's customary for the Chinese leader to go to Russia as their first foreign visit when they start a new term. Of course, nothing about this is normal. She 
has only begun his third term because he got rid of presidential term limits and it would really take a, a great degree of, I guess, willful blindness to, to ignore the calculations involved in traveling to Russia at a time when it's waging war on Ukraine. But nevertheless, I think part of this is aiming to say, look, nothing has changed. China is committed to its relationship with Russia for the same reasons that it was before this war. Would she prefer that this war comes to an end? Yes, I'm sure he would. It's harmed China's interests in multiple ways. But I think the broader calculation is in what he sees as this now really existential struggle with the West and specifically with the United States. Putin is a valuable partner. Russia is an important strategic partner for China. So he wants to secure that relationship. The difficulty is that he wants to do that without causing more reputational damage to China than is already the case. So I think one of the real difficulties for China, particularly in its relationships with Europe, has been this very public standing alongside Putin since the start of the war. Their declaration of the no limits friendship that you referred to there right before Russia invaded Ukraine has really harmed China's relationships in Europe. And I think you've seen at fairly regular intervals since the start of the war, driven by understandable optimism and many people who want to see an end to this, that she is somehow going to distance himself from Putin. That this time Putin's actions have gone too far and now Beijing is going to realize that its interests are not best served by standing together with Russia. And it keeps not happening. So I think the framing of this visit from the statements that were released ahead of time, describing this as a journey of peace, were intended to allow people to believe that she was going there to help negotiate peace. China has tried to insist that it's an impartial actor, that it previously had good relationships with both Russia and Ukraine, and so that it is in a position to be able to mediate in, in peace talks. So if he could succeed in that, then there are substantial benefits from the trip, particularly coming off the back of the deal that China had negotiated between Saudi Arabia and Iran. That would allow Xi to show that China is a major diplomatic force in the world now. It can be a force for good, it can be a force for peace, and it can help to bring peace to Ukraine. But I think we should be clear that is not what's happening. He has no intention of mediating seriously in the war. And he understands that neither side is currently anywhere close to coming to the table for peace talks. Both sides still believe they can continue to make gains. Both still think that they can win. So she can position himself as hoping and wishing for peace and doing everything to bring that about while being safe in the knowledge that's unlikely to come to fruition anytime soon. But I, I think the timing of Putin being accused of war crimes right, right on the eve of this visit and the sort of split screen of she meeting with Putin while Ukraine is still being bombarded by missiles is really going to strain China's relationships, particularly with Europe. And it's it's going to be hard for him to recover from that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the timing of the visit. And you mentioned the extraordinary lengths that Xi is going to thread the needle, particularly with its relationships with Europe. Now, the International Criminal Court has just had just issued a warrant for Putin's arrest over war crimes in Russia's conflict in Ukraine. And the ICC is a body that Europeans really value, whereas the US isn't, I guess you could say, the biggest supporter of the ICC. So it really seems like that specifically does not reflect well that Xi Jinping has showed up at this moment, right, right as that those charges were made. 
Yeah, this is weirdly one of the very few things in the world that China, Russia and the US agree on is that they don't want to be bound by the International Criminal Court. So I think certainly the timing is uncomfortable for China. I wrote a piece for us at the start of the visit on the sort of the image of she walking down the red carpet at the airport in Moscow and watching the Russian military band with part of that military then waging war against Ukraine and then going to shake hands and have a six-course banquet, possibly an eight-course banquet, with Putin right after he had been indicted by the International Criminal Court. China would infinitely prefer that hadn't happened. It makes the diplomacy more complicated. But I think it's not a it's not a real sticking point. I think what you'll see is China and Russia take the approach of, look, this is a politicized court. It is a Western organ. This is part of this sort of grand nefarious Western scheme to, to keep China and Russia down. So I think you'll see continued efforts to discredit that body. I think where it could be interesting and more complicated for Putin is for his future travel plans. Because you're right, the US is not a signatory, but I think more than 100 countries are, including South Africa, which is due to hold the BRICS summit later this year. So there will be a real question now as to whether Putin does still travel to countries that are parties to the International Criminal Court and risk the possibility of arrest? Or does he do it to show that the court is toothless and dare those countries to, to put him in handcuffs and bring him to The Hague? But yeah, it's certainly the timing is complex and deeply uncomfortable from Beijing's perspective. And I'm wondering even if that framing that I, I've put to you is thinking about it wrong, how much of this trip is meant as a signal and a display for their domestic audiences, Russia and China, and how much is it versus how much is meant to signal something to the West or indeed to non-aligned countries? I think there is more substance here, or at least I think there is at least as much substance as there is signaling. I think there is a tendency, particularly here in Washington, to view everything in terms of what is the message to the US? Like when Kim Jong-un tests missiles, what is the message that he's sending when, you know, often there, there is a message associated with it, but the main point is to develop the missiles. I think similarly with this relationship, the point to Xi is that he wants Putin on his side and he wants Putin to survive this war. And I think that's where the signaling comes in, is being very clear that she is not about to wash his hands of Putin. This great hope that he's finally going to come to his senses and decide that his future lies in a better relationship with the West dies and dies again. He, as she looks out at the world, I think he genuinely values the relationship with Russia. Difficult and complex and regularly infuriating as it is, like the relationship with Kim Jong-un, I'm sure he is often deeply frustrated by Putin's actions, but his greater fear is Putin falling and potentially being replaced by a new government that might pursue a rapprochement with the West and bring a, a new pro-Western power onto the other side of their extremely long land border, I think more than 4,000 kilometers long. That would be a strategic nightmare from China's point of view. It is much better, the current relationship, warts and all difficulties included, to have 
Russia, a major nuclear power, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, as a partner for China, which also provides a great source of energy security directly across their land border, supplies China with advanced military technology. Their relationship helps China more than it hurts it. And I think that's why you see Xi continually sticking with it. And the message, the signaling component is to the West, we're not going to turn our backs on Putin. We're going to continue to prop him up. The economic lifeline that China has extended is going to continue. So if you're counting on on near end to this war and Putin to be brought to his knees this year, then you're going to need to rethink that. I think China is signaling that it is standing by Russia despite the reputational consequences and that so perhaps any settlement, any negotiated end to the conflict needs to take that into account and it needs to end on terms that are amenable to Russia because China fears that if it's if it doesn't, if Putin is humiliated in Ukraine, he could lose his own grip on power and China strongly does not want to see that. Let me ask you about some of the economic pledges that they made after their two-day summit. Were there any surprises there? I mean, I think looking through the sort of very warm and fuzzy rhetoric. The main thing is what wasn't there, which is a deal on a new gas pipeline, the power of Siberia 2, that has been dangled for several years now. It would run through Mongolia from Russia to China. That wasn't mentioned. There was no grand signing ceremony on that. This sort of thinking tends to be that's because they haven't agreed terms yet. Putin has made references in the past to how China is an extremely strong negotiator and how it always negotiates uh, very favorable terms. And I think right now, given how much of an upper hand she does have in the economic relationship, I think China is almost certainly pushing very hard for a good deal. And they clearly aren't there yet. So I think if they had been able to conclude that, that would have been a really strong signal that like we have been able to work this out, we are moving forward on this together. That they haven't, I think, is just further evidence of like for all the, the calling each other dear friend and all the smiling in front of the cameras, the relationship is still profoundly limited. There are difficulties between them in their very long, troubled history of relations between China and Russia. More often, it has been defined by hostility and distrust than it has by fruitful cooperation and marching forward, striding forward together as they like to present it. So like, there, there are still real difficulties. There are tensions. There are areas of serious friction in the relationship. It's not perfect. It's not unlimited. But that doesn't mean it's fragile and that it's also about to fall apart. So you mentioned China having the economic upper hand, but also the lengths that we've seen that Xi Jinping is going to maintain this relationship and project that it's still a strong, solid, foundational alliance. Who needs who more in this partnership? I think they both need each other. I think there is there is a sort of common theme in some analyses of this visit as to say, aha, look, she is submitting to his junior partner role. He made some remarks on the opening day about how China's economic growth inspires envy. And certainly the relationship is very unequal and China really does have the upper hand, but that doesn't mean it has complete control and it doesn't mean it can particularly influence 
Russia's behavior. So I think one of the lessons that they have both learned, and very similar in age, I think they're 69 and 70 years old, respectively. They both were mid-ranking officials during the collapse of the Soviet Union. They've both spent a lot of time thinking about that history, thinking about the Cold War. And I think one of the lessons that both sides have learned is that when the relationship has broken down most acrimoniously in the past, in the 1960s, for instance, when they did come to military clashes on the border during the Sino-Soviet split, it was because that the unequal nature of the relationship had gotten out of hand. It was because both sides were nurturing grievances about who was the leader, who was the junior partner. One side felt they were being humiliated by the other. And I think the lesson from that is not to try to flaunt the current inequality of the relationship and not to try to humiliate Putin. A humiliated Putin is just not that useful to Xi. What Xi wants is a Putin who's still bestriding the world, who's still seen as respectable in some quarters, who's still acknowledged as a great power. So it's not in Xi's interests to make Putin look small. It's in Putin, it's in Xi's interests to try to show that Putin is still, you know, he's still strong, he's still got a firm grip on power, he's still going to be a major force to be reckoned with. So he doesn't want him to look weak. He wants him to look strong because that helps China. Although, of course, I'm sure he's very happy to have the upper hand in negotiations on gas prices. Last question, I think, and then we can move on. What are the signs that people could be be looking for, I guess, that the relationship was coming unglued? Is it something that we would even be able to know about or suspect? Or would it all happen behind closed doors and it would be a quite brutal cutoff that no one would know about beforehand. Beijing isn't sentimental. I think the idea that the personal relationship between the two is the real glue, I think is wrong. I think it certainly doesn't help that they, I think they have, they clearly get on quite well together. They they share many grievances. But I think in terms of a split, it would be if Beijing perceives that Putin is done and they want to throw their weight behind somebody else. Certainly that has been the source of a huge amount of difficulty in the relationship with North Korea has been fears on on Kim Jong-un's side that China is backing others within the regime and and trying to unseat him. So I'm sure the Chinese leadership is casting a very, very thorough eye over political developments in the Kremlin and trying to gauge how secure Putin truly is. But in terms of signs that they were really that there was a meaningful split, we saw, for instance, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit last year, Putin acknowledged that she had questions and concerns about the war in Ukraine, which some people seized on as a sign that he was really distancing himself, and he wasn't. So I think we need to be aware that oftentimes the Chinese leadership wants to allow others to see the relationship as suits themselves. So wants various parts of Europe to believe that now there is a break coming, that China is genuinely going to contribute to to bringing peace, but we should watch the substance of the relationship. And as long as that remains strong, I think there's no realistic sign that they are in any way close to a schism. As Katie mentioned, she's written about this for the New Statesman, so we'll link to her piece below. Now, moving on, or I guess you could say moving back, we're going to look at the US-led invasion of Iraq, which on Monday, the 20th of March, marked the 20th anniversary of that invasion. And 
I'm sure everyone, all of our listeners would have read and heard a lot about the 20th anniversary and gone down the memory hole of back to 2003 and what that time was like. Not least readers of The New Statesman, we had a special issue last week, which we will also link to the show notes, that has a number of pieces that looks at the decisions leading up to that invasion and what the consequences of that invasion were. Our issue is called the Iraq Catastrophe, so I think you can probably guess what direction we're going in with the issue. But I want, for the purposes of this discussion, I wanted to talk to Katie specifically about how those consequences aren't just back in 2003, 4, 5, 8, that they still have a clear through line to today and to so many of the geopolitical issues that are still impacting and shaping our world. So there's a variety of ways that we can discuss this. One of the clearest ways that I want to raise is just the impact that that disastrous invasion and that grotesque moral choice by the US and the UK and its allies made in invading, how that has created the conditions for so many subsequent further tragedies. As part of the issue, I interviewed James Blumel, who is the director of the very, very good documentary, Once Upon a Time in Iraq, and re-watching the documentary, which takes place from the, in- the time of the invasion and all the way up to, to the rise and destruction of ISIS in Iraq, told through the voices of Iraqis and journalists and soldiers who were there, you just get a clear sense of how one bad decision just creates a topple effect and all of these other disastrous outcomes come from that. Just to pull one thread out of where I'm going with this, I have felt that in for the past year, there's been a lot of talk quite loudly from the left, but you also hear voices chiming in from the far right about why the West should not be involved with Ukraine and why the West, the US and the UK shouldn't be supporting Ukraine in its defense against Russia, who has invaded it. And one of the the hallmarks that people throw back to is look at Iraq. We need to, we should have learned our lesson there. We should have stayed out of there. And I think there is a solid point there that Iraq did really result in Western public opinion turning against the idea of leadership and involvement in international crises. And it's the idea was seeded and then cemented that the West shouldn't concern itself with getting involved in other people's wars. And I wanted to talk to ask you, Katie, if if any of the coverage of the anniversary of the invasion has struck you as particularly poignant to today's situation, relevant to today's situation, and what and also what you make of those kind of arguments that you hear from the left. Yeah, I think that's a really eloquent summary. I think one of the key legacies here in the US is this idea of not 
entering into any more forever wars. That was a powerful part of Donald Trump's campaign platform in 2016. And it's still here. It's very much part of, of how, as you point out, people on both wings, people on the further ends of the Republican Party and also the further ends of the Democratic Party cite wars like the invasion of Iraq as a reason why the United States should be very cautious about getting involved in any way, particularly in terms of committing US troops to wars overseas. So that is still very much a live part of the political debate here. I think another aspect um, that has has struck me, others who focus on China, is the the ways in which the current discourse about the contest between the US and China is beginning to mirror in some ways the conversation in the run-up to Iraq, particularly a very good analyst, Mike Mazar, who, who wrote an excellent book about the foreign policy blunders on, on the US side that led up to the war in 2019. He has really been warning loudly lately that, that he sees parallels to that discourse now, particularly in terms of the moral absolutism and what he describes as the loyalty enforcing groupthink. I think that period in the kind of march to war, when it was clear to anyone who was really looking at it, that there wasn't hard evidence linking Saddam Hussein to, to weapons of mass destruction being supplied to foreign terrorist groups. But that wasn't acceptable. People who raised that were told that they just didn't get it, that they didn't understand a national security threat. I think that's something to really guard against in the current debate here is that people who disagree on China's actions or who disagree on the approach that the US should take to China, that it's important not to belittle that and to see that as being, you're just not on our team, but to take that seriously and to look long and hard at the arguments for any escalation. And then, as I mentioned, this sort of moral absolutism, we've had recently here the new China Select Committee, which held its first hearing in prime time on, on television, tried to really get this argument out to the American public. And the chairman of that committee talked about in now being in this existential struggle for the future of the 21st century with China. At the end of the hearing, he talked about how it being very clear who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. I think that sort of reductive kind of simplistic logic, we should learn from what happened 20 years ago about where that should lead. It's important to say we're, we're not there yet. We are nowhere near the kind of hysterical frenzy in Washington that preceded the Iraq war, but we should learn from that and we should take care not to not to repeat it. But I wanted to also ask you, you've been heavily involved in this issue and what you see as the legacy of that war in terms of British, particularly British foreign policy, as Britain is already reckoning with what its role is in the world after Brexit, how has that affected the view there towards what the UK should and shouldn't do in the world, and particularly, I guess, how closely it should follow the United States. Yeah, I agree with so much of what you said in in the fact that in many ways it does seem like we we have not learned the right lessons from Iraq, even though it's openly acknowledged that the, the invasion was a disaster and that the reliance on, you know, 
false evidence to to invade and stirring up public opinion opposing Iraq was a misstep, a catastrophic misstep. There are so many other aspects of the invasion and of those choices that were made that haven't really been reckoned with. Get to Britain's place on the world stage, but even closer to home, you see so much of it in the the talk about the small boats crisis of refugees and asylum seekers coming over over the channel. And the language that's used to describe these people is just, it's appalling. And there is a complete failure to acknowledge, let alone to even try and reckon with the fact that a significant portion of these people are escaping the Middle East, if not Iraq, than countries that were in some way impacted by the invasion and the occupation of Iraq, whether it's through the civil war that followed, whether it's they they tried to escape ISIS that came in the wake of the invasion. And I think there's just an absolute denial of Britain's and the West's role in the situation that is still happening in the Middle East and in Iraq. We talk about this as in the past, 20 years ago, and that was a mistake. And there's sometimes there's a sense of, we've moved on. That was history. We've learned the lessons. But <laughs> it's not history in Iraq. It's still ongoing. The, the ramifications of those decisions are still being felt every day by the people who are still there and still living. And it's just, it's quite extraordinary to me, the cognitive dissonance that the public and politicians can go through to remove themselves from that narrative. But yeah, and to also get to bring it to your point about how the UK operates on the world stage, we've seen public support and political support for Ukraine has been pretty uniform. There are outliers, of course, on and in the US, there is the fringe that advocates against this. I would say in the UK, it's probably more on the far left than it would than on the far right. But of course, it's not something that you can easily divide by across the political spectrum. But you do see it in, in other ways. There's, and it, before Ukraine, that there is a palpable reluctance for the UK to get involved in foreign affairs, foreign conflicts, whether that's for good or bad. In some situations and in some circumstances, reluctance to get involved or a refusal to get involved can be just as dangerous as a complete gung-ho, let's invade, let's go in, doesn't matter if we don't have a plan. We can't completely stay out of what is happening in the world because of what happened in Iraq. But we have to take the lessons of what went wrong, why Iraq was such a catastrophe. There's definitely, if we can, I don't want to go through the entire issue because we'll definitely put links, so I don't want to repeat, but there was no plan. There was no, you can't go for regime change without having any actual plan of what is going to replace that regime and how is how the country will then be organized and policed. So I, I'm definitely not arguing that the US or the UK or the West should, should continue on regime change, especially as John Gray makes the point in his excellent piece, the West shouldn't be advocating 
for getting rid of Putin in Russia in in the war in Ukraine. That's not the way to solve it. I absolutely agree with that. The we should not be in the business of rooting out leaders of other countries, which that is the good lesson to take from Iraq. So as I mentioned, we have a number of pieces. We'll link to them in the show notes if you're interested, or you can pick up a copy on the newsstand. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. A listener asks if Donald Trump is arrested. How will it affect his 2024 presidential campaign? Katie, do you want to wade in with this one? (laughs) Yes. To back up just momentarily, the former president, obviously Donald Trump, is facing multiple legal cases at the moment. I am going to be using the word allegedly a lot in the (laughs) sentences that that follow. Lawyers, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. This particular case is a case out of Manhattan where a a grand jury is in the final stages of determining whether Donald Trump should face criminal charges for allegedly paying an adult film star, Stormy Daniels, who you may have heard of, to keep quiet over their alleged affair. 
We are told that decision could come as soon as today. We're recording this on Wednesday, so it's possible that by the time this drops into your podcast feeds on Thursday, we already know, or the decision could be made later in the week. But you would then have the really complex situation of a former president facing criminal charges with all of the ensuing difficulties about whether and how he would be arraigned, how they would negotiate a surrender, whether he would face what's known here in the US as a perp walk, where the perp or perpetrator is paraded in handcuffs past a, a bank of cameras to show justice in action. It's it's reported that he is personally extremely focused on that and strategizing with AIDS, how he would approach a perp walk, whether he would smile at the cameras, whether he would say anything, how he would present himself scenario. It's perhaps not surprising that he seems to be focusing on the visuals rather than the very real legal difficulties. It's actually thought that the Justice Department would try to avoid that because they, they will be very aware that this is already being framed by Trump and many other senior Republicans as a politically motivated case that is intended to stop him from running again for the presidency. In terms of how it will affect his campaign, so far he seems to be trying to frame this as just part of the great witch hunt against Donald Trump that the deep state and the American political elite has been waging against him from the very beginning. He's been calling for protests. He is trying to claim that this is essentially just his political rivals trying to silence him when he is fighting on valiantly on behalf of the little guy. It is very instructive to see how his main rivals for the Republican nomination are responding to this, specifically Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who has not declared he's running for president, but is doing all of the things you would do if you were running for president. He has really tried to avoid taking any public stance on Donald Trump. But earlier this week, he talked about the case for the first time and he tried to make a joke out of it. He said, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just can't speak to that, to laughter in the room. And then he pivoted to say that he had real issues to deal with here in the state of Florida. So I think you see him trying to a little bit poke fun at Donald Trump and to say, this guy has just got a lot of of troubles. He's got a lot of baggage. I would be a much better bet because I'm just going to get on with the job in hand. He has also made aspersions against the Manhattan District Attorney and accused him of not focusing on tackling real crime. So he's certainly prepared to dog whistle at the idea that this is a politically motivated case and that there is reason to be suspicious of the legal behavior here. But that, that's the most confrontational he has been towards Donald Trump. And it's the first time he, as you described, Megan, has clapped back against the former president. But others, for instance, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, talking about the danger of the precedent this would set if a former president faces criminal prosecution and the concern that this will look like a politically motivated trial, which will discredit the legal system in some people's eyes. So look, I think these are extraordinary times as they have been from the very moment Donald Trump appeared on the political scene here. And this is not even the most serious case he is currently dealing with. But I think the real test is going to be whether if he is arrested, if he does face charges, whether he can then leverage that to 
benefit his campaign to present himself as this great freedom fighter or whether this is the final millstone around his neck and this is what causes the Republican establishment to to finally decide that this guy is done. We need to move on, which is a lesson they have persistently refused to learn so far, but you never know. Hope springs eternal. Yeah, some people have made the point that this is kind of a perfect opportunity for the establishment Republicans who maybe have long wanted to get rid of Trump and have been tired of his complete erraticism, but have been too scared of alienating his base. So this could be a way to get rid of the man, but keep Trumpism and harness their grievances, but conveniently get rid of the the head of that movement that they haven't been able to control. So it will be interesting to see what happens. It will. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. A reminder that you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when our colleague Alona Ferber will be speaking to Noah Landau, the deputy editor of Haaretz, about Benjamin Netanyahu's visit to the UK, the Israel government's move to the far right, and ongoing tensions in the country. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Please also give us a good rating and leave us a great review. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.